Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Jesus had just finished a scathing pronouncement of judgment upon the scribes. And then he'd call his disciples over to see a poor widow giving everything she had to the temple treasury. Right there we see quite a contrast. Matthew's account tells us that the end of Jesus pronouncing multiple woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, he also once again poured out his lament or his sorrow over the city of Jerusalem and her people in Matthew 23. His disciples heard him say these words, See, your house is left to you desolate. Which means simply that Jerusalem and the great temple are being forsaken and abandoned by God. Why? Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Did the disciples pick up anything Jesus was driving at yet? Well, let's see. Now, as he and his disciples leave the temple, one of the disciples voices an observation about the beauty and the grandeur of the buildings of the temple. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings here in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus' immediate response was the last thing on earth his disciples expected to hear. Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples were struck literally to the core of their beings. They were so upset and bewildered by his statement that they then approached him at the very first opportunity they had to be alone with him. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, just east of the Temple Mount, across the Kidron Valley. If you were able, would you please stand as I read Mark 13, verses 3 through 36 from the English Standard Bible. Yes, it's the whole chapter. We're just going through the first part today. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they'll lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created unto now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from, with, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I will say to all. Stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage is probably very familiar to most of you, but even if it is, you've probably been just as confounded as everybody else who's tried to interpret the details here. Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 24 is very close to Mark's here. And in order to do this chapter justice, we'll probably spend four Sundays going through it. There will be an order that I think will be very, very helpful. Above all else, we must understand the questions that the disciples ask here and the context of these questions. Let that sink in. That will be our order or the context that the order will come in. Remember the striking statement that Jesus made in Matthew 23, 38 from just a minute ago. See, your house is left to its desolation right before all this the Olivet Discourse. Jesus had just followed his pronouncements of judgments upon the scribes and the Pharisees by doing what? By including the people of Israel in these judgments. The disciples could not fathom at all how their house, these gorgeous, beautiful buildings, Beautiful, the center of their very world. The temple being implied mostly here would be or could be left desolate. It did not compute. It was so huge and magnificent and beautiful, the center of their very world. God would never again abandon them and allow his house to become desolate. The stones that Jesus said would be thrown down, not one stone left upon another, were about 35 feet long, 11 feet high, and 17 feet wide. One would barely fit in here. And they were beautiful white color. The grounds of the Temple Mount had been improved by Herod, so the whole area on top of the hill that dominated this city was for all to look up to and see. This was a truly magnificent place. Could Jesus really mean what he had just said? Matthew's account also tells us that Jesus had ended his lament over Jerusalem by referring to his return, saying, For I tell you, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until 
you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, does that ring a bell? The triumphal entry began with those very words. Need I say the disciples didn't get this about coming again because he hadn't left yet. They knew what was implied and what he had taught about just the next couple of days. But come on, they didn't get the magnitude of it. So the two brothers, two sets of brothers, Peter named Andrew and James and John, of course, are the natural ones to ask these natural questions. The questions we'd expect them to ask. They would naturally associate the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with Christ's coming and the end of the world. Let me say that again because this is really important. The apostles would naturally associate the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with Christ's coming and the end of the world. Christ had just put all of those things kind of together. And they didn't understand any of it, but they're thinking if that happens or could or would or whatever, they saw it happening associated together. One thing for sure we can say is they were constantly being astounded by what Jesus said. But this was probably the most disturbing and bewildering thing they had ever heard him say. Right up there with talk of being delivered over to the authorities and put to death, which was just a couple of days from now. We know from the way that Jesus answered their questions in the rest of the chapter here that he didn't want them to assume that these matters were necessarily going to happen together. Now, how would he do that? Think about that. He didn't want them to just naturally assume that the destruction of of Jerusalem and the temple and his coming and the end of the world would necessarily happen together. I wonder why. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, On the contrary, although Jerusalem would fall quickly within 40 years or so from now, his disciples were not to regard either it or other historical disasters, however terrible, as signs of his coming. His return would be, what did he say, without warning. And they needed to be concerned mainly, as we saw from just hearing the whole text read, mainly about being ready for whenever it took place. Now, in verse 4 are the questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when, notice how Mark puts this, all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, When we look at Matthew's account, what looks like the second question 
that Mark asked here actually is made up of two questions. So there are three questions that the disciples ask. And this is the key to understanding this whole chapter. When will these things be? And what will be all these, when all these things are about to be accomplished are really three questions. What's the first one? When will these things be? And that's exactly the same in Matthew's account. This refers specifically to what Jesus had just predicted. The immediate and close concern, which was what? The destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. So what does Mark mean by, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, Matthew tells us exactly what was included in this general question that Mark, how Mark puts it. First, what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So the three questions are, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Everybody got that? Because if you don't get that, you're going to be lost before we get started. Now, in the rest of the the chapter here, in verses 5 through 37, Jesus does answer these three questions. But he answers them separately and not in the order they were asked. Now, why would he do that? They were naturally assuming that all this went together. So he's not even going to put them in chronological order. He just answers, hopefully, that somebody, we, get that they're separate questions. Now, as usual, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach these disciples what he knows they need to know which is very often very different from what they thought they needed to know. Don't worry, I have a chart, like every other preacher, that we will splash all over this wall. No, I don't. All you have to do is know what the three questions are and then figure out which part of the chapter each is answered. And remember what I just said. Jesus knows what we need to know. And that is very different from what we think that we need to know about these questions. I hope that's clear. Why? Why is he doing this again? Because they still obviously had a lot of things confused. And because some of these things are just not supposed to are meant to be known. And you can tell that because Jesus more or less says it. In verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
I think I've told you when we lived in Bernie decades ago, you know, there's always some strange group of people out in the middle of nowhere. Central Texas is no exception. But there's a rock there called the Enchanted Rock. It's this huge dome thing. I mean, it's, I, don't, I was going to figure out how big it was, but you, everybody can just walk on top of it. One side is pretty much like that, so people go rappelling. And, but it's this basic, just big, huge, huge rock in the middle of the Texas Hill Country. And, of course, there was a group where somebody had figured out from all the scripture and the clues and the writings and the Latin and everything else that's included when Christ was going to come back. So those people, and it wasn't that many of them, decided or figured out that Enchanted Rock was the place to be. And they were there for weeks. Finally, people were going, well, I guess he got it wrong. I guess he got it wrong. And that happens all over the world, folks. We know that. People are looking for something. They get so excited about stuff they should not get excited about, like knowing the exact time. Don't even bother. Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, what does Jesus do first in our passage? We'll cover how Jesus answers each question. One question a week. And then, I think in the fourth week, we'll finish with the application that Jesus gives in verses 32 through 37. Here in verses 5 through 13, Jesus essentially answers the last of the three questions. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Remember, that's a quote from Matthew's version, but that's included in Mark's second question. He just didn't separate them or just make it distinct. When we read that, Now that you know for sure this is answering what will be the sign of the end of the age, you realize that his answer is a lot more general than the disciples expected. He does tell them about all the terrible things that will happen at the close of the age, the end of the age, before his coming. But these things will characterize And this is key. History in general. The whole time from Jesus' death and resurrection to the end. We're not something special. Those things that we read have been going on all this time. Over 2,000 years. Especially. These things characterize history in general and the whole time before Jesus comes back. And he says in verse 8, the end there, these are but the what? The beginning of birth pains. 
In other words, these terrible calamities and claims against believers and the tribulations that are in our text will always be present. And Jesus gives several specific commands to his people about how to respond to all these bad things. This is the church age. We don't understand this, let's be honest. Why? Because God and his grace is given where we live basically a lot of peace. But we can fill in the parts that weren't true. And we realize that especially every major world war, people were making claims, this is it, this is it. It couldn't get any worse than this. The whole time. And he says these are the beginnings. But what are the responses? Isn't that what we've been asking? Or do we just want to know the answers to when, when, when? If I knew when, I could just gut it up and make it till then. No. He says, be awake. Be ready for whenever. In verse 5, he says, see that no one leads you astray. In verse 7, he says, don't be alarmed. In verse 9, he says, be on your guard. In verse 11, he says, don't be anxious. And in verse 13, he says, endure to the end. You want to put something on your refrigerator? Try these. Really? If you don't want to do it, get your kids to write it up, draw it up. See that no one leads you astray. Don't be alarmed by all the things that are happening. That didn't mean don't care. It says don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. Don't be anxious. Endure to the end. Now notice how important verse 10 is. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. That's really the only time frame reference in this part. Indicating that the concluding events in the world's history are going to be preceded by proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in college, I was involved in a a parachurch ministry that actually built their strategy on sharing how to share the gospel with everybody in the whole world by geometric progression. If I share it with five of you and each of you share in the next couple of months with five other people, they actually multiplied it all out and figured out the whole world's population could hear the gospel in a very short amount of time. And in just a couple of years, we got kids from students from all over the country to gather in Dallas at something called Well, then you'll know. But anyway, it filled the cotton bowl in the whole city. And what was that? It had some good, good motives to share the gospel. One of the underlying motives was so that Jesus will come back and we'll be there. Be here. Well, obviously, if I share the gospel with 10 people and they become Christians, Maybe one out of ten will share it with somebody else in the next month or two. Maybe three or four. Hopefully that would work, but we, you know how we are. It didn't work. But this is a promise 
the gospel going to all the nations. That still should be the church's motivation. But not for reasons because we like numbers and we like how it works, but because people need a Savior. He is the only hope. We also know that while the gospel was preached to most of the Roman world in the first century, the people of the whole world will not, were not reached. That should be obvious. Notice that this is a statement that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations before the end. But this does not mean that the end will immediately come after this is accomplished. Did you catch that? It just means the gospel will reach all nations before. It doesn't say immediately. In fact, the words are actually different in several places. This is obviously, as I mentioned, an ongoing mission of the church. So one huge warning that Jesus is issuing to his people is not to try to connect the signs of the end to current events. Just quit. Did you read the list? Earthquakes, famines, nations against all sorts of calamities. In other words, everything on the list that always gets our attention. One of the problems is, you know, it it hadn't been too long that we didn't know about every calamity in the world when it happened. And now it's on your screen two minutes after it happens if it's got anybody at all. So it looks like everything's falling apart a lot faster. And it might be as far as we know it, but we've got to take that into account. Instead, the church is supposed to be about the the commission that we have from God, from Christ himself, the task of proclaiming the gospel. Jesus doesn't call us to preoccupy ourselves with all sorts of speculation about his coming. Instead, he's called us to persevere or endure to the end. Isn't that what he says? Don't be preoccupied trying to connect all the dots with this many this and this many that, and oh, it's multiplying, and let me research on it. Do you realize how much time people waste doing that? We're supposed to be concerned with persevering and enduring to the end during all the calamities, which we are beginning to find out takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of faith and hope. The calamity of nations, the groaning of the earth, the rise of false teaching, and in the face of persecution. And as he has called us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, these are the tasks that we need to be concerned about. This is a warning that is still needed in our day, isn't it? There are still media preachers whose whole ministries, basically, are centered around their charts of end-time events. But also for those who tend to look for all the worsening time scenarios as absolute proof the end is near. So said people after each world war and every terrible calamity. 
Followers of Christ are not to be deceived by false teaching on this subject. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. True believers will, will endure or persevere because endurance or perseverance is evidence of true faith. The ones referred to in the passage who are led astray and in Matthew's account who fall away or betray one another and hate one another and whose love grows cold is how Matthew put Jesus' words. He expounded, got a little more detail in there. What about those? Well, that just gives evidence that those people were not true believers in the first place. True believers will endure. They will persevere. What we fail to realize about enduring and perseverance is that God, in his word, issues both warnings against falling away and promises that true believers will endure and persevere. we got both going on. Why? Because the warnings and the admonitions are part of the means that God uses to secure this perseverance in the faith for you. In Jude, Jude urges believers to keep yourselves in the love of God, in Jude 21, and then immediately directs them to God who is able to keep you from stumbling. Peter says this beautifully in 1 Peter 1, verse 5 where he describes true believers, quote, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That shouldn't scare you. It should encourage you by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Remember that Peter knew something about perseverance. Since he was restored and his faith strengthened and proved true after he denied knowing Jesus three times after Jesus' arrest. Boy, did he know it. And here are a couple of sober warnings in this warning and admonitions balance that we see with the promises. In Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That's great. How about the next phrase? Without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Revelation three eleven. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This kind of stuff is all through Scripture. They're the warnings to get our attention because we get so just used to the way things are and I'm okay. So we need to pay heed. And here are a few of maybe some of your most favorite well-known promises. John 10, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Will you remember that? If we are struck with persecutions, famines, earthquakes, tornadoes, another floods, governments falling apart, America actually being invaded, if those horrible things actually happen, will we remember this? That's what these are for. Most of us can't even make it through one day without wavering and falling apart over some minor detail. Romans 8, 38 and 39, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. My favorite if there can be such a thing as Philippians 1.6. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's got to be a couple of you that when you get a book, a mystery, a novel, and you know who the characters are already, you read the last part to figure out what happens, Right? Do you realize that we have the last part? And we still go this way, go this way. Jesus is saying when down through, from from the time I leave you guys until the time I come back, this is going to be a picture of the world in general. All this stuff's going to be going on. And here's how you're supposed to respond to it. Here are the promises I've given you. Praise the Lord. These are the promises he gives you. Because we have a lot to be concerned about. And those of you that went to the conference know that there's never been a time in our country's history when such things were even thought about, much less lifted up as being great and glorious things in the path to go on that are absolute evil. Are we falling apart because of those things? It'd be easy to. A true believer is grieved by their own sin and rebellion and true to their Savior and confession and repentance. Jesus tells his disciples that even in the midst of all these horrible events, which have been and still are common throughout all of church history, his true followers will persevere like they have all through history, enduring to the end. So when we're faced with false messiahs who lead so many astray, Wars and rumors of wars. Nation 
rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines, know that what? These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So don't be alarmed. They must take place, Jesus says, but the end is not yet. When you go, well, that's not great. I mean, I wanted, you know, something to, yeah, this is what we hang on to. This is why the gospel goes first and we lift our Lord as high as we can possibly do it by obeying him and worshiping him and putting the attention on him and not all of our crazy ideas. This is it. Something else, because as things do fall apart, when will Christians shine? Yeah, that's when we are supposed to shine because of his power in and through us. When you're delivered over to councils and beaten in places of worship. Jesus didn't say if. He said when. We've been free of that. Mostly. And anybody that knows anything about world missions knows that that is not the case most other places. And standing before governors and kings for Jesus' sake to bear witness before them. Remember that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And sometimes this is how God works it out, that it gets there. And so do not become anxious. Because the Holy Spirit in those situations will use your witness and he will bear witness to Christ the Lord. You may not have time to make a PowerPoint presentation for the judge or have your phone available to have all your notes about what you need to tell him in order to bear witness to Christ. It's just going to come. What's in here is going to come. When brother... This is hard. When brother delivers brother over to death and fathers deliver their own children and children rise up against parents and have them put to death and you are hated by all for Christ's sake. What are you supposed to do? You don't want to answer that. You don't want to even think about that. Well, neither do I. This is our book. So we better. We're supposed to endure to the end, proving who you belong to, and you will enjoy him forever and ever and ever. Quite a goal. Quite a goal.
That's it for this question. Some of these questions, especially the, the end and Christ's coming, are, are closely related. But we'll see how the questions make it entirely possible to understand this passage. Next, Jesus answers, when will these things be? He addresses the immediate destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And there is an immediate application for that next, next week. But there's also a forward-looking application to the Great Tribulation. You know, pointing towards something else. But it's immediately asking these guys who are going, these are great buildings. And Jesus says, there's not going to be one of these stones on top of one another in just three and a half, four decades. And then he ends with what will be the sign of your coming, which they ask. So he explains what will be the sign of his coming in the last, next to the last paragraph. And then the application is the last paragraph. Does that make it clear? So he goes 312. 2 And if you're lost, go to Matthew and you'll see the two questions, the last two, two and three. At least voice. The rest of the text is pretty close, almost exactly the same. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you know what we need to do. You have pointed us to your son today. As Jesus answers these concerns that all of us have so many questions about. And and you choose to keep our hearts and our minds on what matters most, which is who you are, what you've done in your son and how that burden of our sin being paid for by him propels us into seeing the needs of others, the need for a savior themselves, and helps us think about seriously how to be a part of, in some way, form or fashion, spreading the gospel to the whole world. And Lord, as we do that, we know that you use that to help us get our minds off of our what are really life day-to-day issues that can become so consuming and in many ways so trivial compared to the big picture. And Lord, we need that. We thank you for putting us in a place with other of your children to be encouraged by one another, to love one another to see through all the cloud and the fog to see what's really important. And we thank you that you can use this chapter especially to get our attention that way. Help us understand what you're saying. Help us understand what the disciples didn't understand and what they were about to understand and what that meant in your redemptive history as they trusted you and as they knew your forgiveness and your purpose, and they set out to carry it out through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Thank you for your, your faithfulness to us.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I think it's time to read Jude's benediction. It's just right to the point. It's not very long. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.